Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. The Loft, starring James Marsden and Carl Urban, is a psychological thriller about five friends who turn on each other after they discover a dead body in their secret penthouse loft. Watch it on demand now. In Barely Lethal, a teenage special ops agent coveting a normal adolescence fakes her own death and enrolls in a suburban high school. Starring Haley Steinfeld, Jessica Alba, and Samuel L. Jackson, it premieres on demand this Friday, the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are, with movies on demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. You're listening to Film Spotting. I'm Matt Singer from Screen Crush with BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore filling in for Adam and Josh this week. Allison and I are the hosts of Film Spotting SVU, Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. And later in the show, we're going to bring you our top five streaming sci-fi movies, which conveniently doubles as my top five Arnold Schwarzenegger movies that also happen to be sci-fi and also streaming. But it's nice how those things dovetail so perfectly. Yeah, it's never happened before in our conversations. <laughs> I've never mentioned it before. It's the first time. Yeah, well, but first, <laughs> director Brad Bird has given us an Iron Giant, a Mr. and Mrs. Incredible, and a Rat Chef. What awaits us in Tomorrowland? When I touch this pen... I saw this place. Some place amazing. And it felt like anything was possible. And then it was gone. What do you want? I want you to take me to the place I saw when I touched this. Where'd you get that? I know that you were there. Who are you, kid? They followed you here? Who? John Francis Walker! You are now harboring a fugitive element. Release her to our custody. You have one minute to go fly. On July 17th, 1955, Walt Disney dedicated Tomorrowland at the opening day of Disneyland. He called it, quote, a vista into a world of wondrous ideas, signifying man's achievements. A step into the future with predictions of constructed things to come. Tomorrow offers new frontiers in science, adventure, and ideals. The atomic age, the challenge of outer space, and the hope for a peaceful, united world. Almost 60 years later, we live in a world very different from the one predicted by Disney's Tomorrowland, and that's sort of what Brad Bird's Tomorrowland is all about. Disney's Tomorrowland was one of boundless optimism for advances in science and technology and the social and ethical improvements those would bring. 
but in 2015, things they could be better. A peaceful United World? Uh, forget about that. But will we have a peaceful United film spotting? Let's find out. Birds Tomorrowland actually never visits Disney's. Instead, after a brief prologue, the movie begins at the 1964 World's Fair, where a young inventor named Frank Walker tries to win a contest by showing off a homemade jetpack. His gadget isn't a hit, but his spirit catches the eye of a young girl named Athena, played by Raffi Cassidy, who gives him a curious-looking pin and encourages him to follow her into the It's a Small World ride. A few minutes later, the world gets a whole lot bigger when Frank is transported to Tomorrowland, a futuristic utopia filled with incredible technological wonders. Cut to 2015, where another young science genius, this one named Casey, played by Britt Robertson, works to prevent a dark tomorrow from coming into being by working to disrupt the dismantling of a NASA launch platform in Florida. And her actions catch the eyes of Athena, who mysteriously hasn't aged in 60 years, and then who gives her another magic pin, which transports her to Tomorrowland. Allison, I don't think they handed out any Tomorrowland pins at the screening we attended, or at least we didn't get any. But I'm wondering, on a metaphorical level, did you find yourself transported by Tomorrowland? And what do you make of the movie's argument that what's really missing from our world in 2015 is a little bit of that Walt Disney-style futurism optimism from 1955. Oh, that's the the real tough question. (laughs) Uh, To answer your first question, I would say that this movie has a lot of great imagery, particularly when we finally get to Tomorrowland, and it has a lot of neat gadgetry in between, uh, kind of inserted into the present day, less magical present day. I think that the visuals are often very impressive. And the one that's highlighted in all of the trailers in which the main character picks up the pin and is like brought immediately to Tomorrowland is, is a particularly nice one. But I do think that this movie's argument, as much as I am in favor of having uh, a sci-fi movie that for change offers up optimism, kind of demands optimism, I think that this movie its argument really just rubbed me the wrong way. There's Hmm. something kind of didactic about its ultimate argument in favor of utopia at the expense of dystopia. It sets up an argument saying that all of these dystopias, all of this doom and gloom that we're so fond of at the moment, which includes like real life warnings about things like global warming or political unrest, that all of those things are are kind of killing us, are bringing us down, mm-hmm. that we need optimism because optimism and the dreamers are, and fixing things, you know, like people who think about how to actually fix things, those are, those are the way towards the be- a better future and that we are ultimately ruining that by focusing on all of these complaints. And that's an argument I find pretty hard to swallow. Do you agree? You know, I actually responded more to the idea or the message than I did to like sort of the the plot, the narrative, the story, the adventure. I I like the sort of optimism of the of the movie, at least in theory. I think it's a it's a nice to believe. You know, you mentioned that the movie suggests that cynicism is in a sense a self-fulfilling prophecy that all these movies about dystopia and darkness and The movie is right. We are awash in that sort of stuff. This movie comes out a week after Mad Max Fury Road, which has a very dark future. 
It's a week before San Andreas, which destroys the entire West Coast of America. So there's certainly, I think, a point that there is a lot of this sort of very dark science fiction out there. And I'm I'm sort of inclined to believe, especially on a place like the Internet, there there is so much negativity and cynicism and darkness that it really it kind of makes you want to give up. And I say that from personal experience that like, why bother when you do something and on the Internet, the reaction is instantaneous, you know, negativity and, and sometimes outright hatred. But to me, where it sort of lost me was you said that it's a didactic film and it absolutely is. I mean, it is a lecture as much as it is a movie. It is a lecture with beautiful images, as you said, and and impressive special effects. But it feels more like someone wagging their finger at you than it does necessarily telling you a story. And that was sort of my issue with it, was that I'm willing to to buy into what th- this movie is selling, but I just wish it sold it to me with a better pitch. See, I just don't believe on a level that it connects our interest in dystopia, our interest in something apocalyptic like Mad Max, Fury Road, to then feeling defeated, to humanity feeling defeated. I, I just, I don't think that there is a real connection there. And I think that it sets up this other issue that I don't think the movie ever fully resolves, which is that this kind of utopia that it rep- that it idealizes, this Walt Disney envisioned 1964 utopia, mm-hmm. is a fundamentally pretty conservative American version of the future. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of the dystopic vis- or dystopian visions that we've like you know in- like indulged in now including things like blade runner say or like these you know some of the famous sci-fi movies that would be described as dystopias they offer uh, a vision of the future that is globalized it may be grimmer but also seems to take into account a world that's significantly changed since then. Mm. And I think the movie tries to wrestle with this a little bit, particularly towards the end, but it never really gets there. I don't think that it really reconciles this decades-old retro future with the modern day. You're listening to Film Spotting, filling in for Adam and Josh this week. It's Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. We are talking about Brad Bird's Tomorrowland. Bird certainly is a guy, as a filmmaker, who's very interested in retro futures. I think that's the perfect word for it. The Incredibles, the Iron Giant, even to some extent Mission Impossible, which is an old TV show with fancy gadgets like changing faces, right? He sort of loves that kind of old-fashioned optimism. And so it certainly feels like his sort of movie. But the thing that I felt like he didn't bring to Tomorrowland that he brought to some of those other movies was just the sense of fun and excitement and and i really felt like this one was was lacking in it putting aside all those issues about the message which i think you raise some interesting points about i i just i i was just kind of bored at times by this movie and it's like if you're trying to encourage people to think optimistically and to put down dystopian visions and darkness and embrace the light I feel like you have to give them something enjoyable in there, right? Those Some of those dark movies, Mad Max, Free Road, it's a dark film. But it is entertaining as all get out, you know? Like, I, that's a fun film, even as dark as it is. Tomorrowland is not, it's not very fun. Where's the fun? It's, uh, where's, where's the sense of excitement and adventure? It's all there in theory. People talk about it. And a couple of the characters constantly say things like, wow, and gee whiz, and things like that. But... I, I didn't really feel it. Well, I think it, it sets up its own kind of challenge, which is that one of the reasons that we don't set a lot of 
you know, movies and utopias is that they're boring. They're <laughs> right. fundamentally lacking in conflict. Right. That is what, you know, in plot, basically. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that the movie takes so long to actually get to Tomorrowland, that we see it in visions and it turns out to maybe not be... It may be like an idea of Tomorrowland mm -hmm. rather than the actual Tomorrowland is that there's actually not that much to do once you get there. The only thing you can do in Tomorrowland is save it, which is what the movie ends up being about. Right. And I, I think that's where you run into the issue of this sense of wonder and like what to do with that is that that sense of awe that Bradbeard clearly wants to bring out in people is, I, I don't know, attached to this very idealized world that they they never quite get to right yeah that's sort of a problem and i think that's very well put is is tomorrowland is so perfect so what could possibly happen that's of interest in a perfect place well they create this whole scenario where something horrible has happened to tomorrowland and casey the brit robertson character has been sort of recruited by athena to kind of help her revitalize it and that's how eventually we get to the frank walker character that boy inventor now all grown up now very cynical and jaded in the he did, he did make the great decision to grow up into George Clooney. True. I, you know, two thumbs up for that. <laughs> it's hard to believe that uh, a guy who's got everything going for him like George Clooney could be so cynical. He's George <laughs> Clooney. If there's no hope for George Clooney, what hope is there for the rest of us? Humanity I mean, is doomed. We really are doomed. But yeah, so they, they, they find him and he has this house full of gadgetry it's it's sort of like home alone if if you know if, if he grew up like the macaulay culkin character grew up to be an inventor and never left his house but really booby trapped it with really high-tech booby traps but there's a whole sequence there but honestly there was really only one sequence in the entire film and that's the one that's set at the eiffel tower which i won't go into detail on but that was really the only part of this film where i really started to get caught up in the like in the chase in the mystery you know it, the film is co-written by damon lindelof right one of the guys from lost who certainly has a reputation for building these very elaborate mysteries and conspiracies that's sort of his specialty and that's definitely present in tomorrowland where we have this strange mystical alternate dimension that's been created by all these great figures so it sort of presents this kind of alternative history which is kind of interesting but they i was surprised how little there actually was in the film uh walt disney himself who i guess is one of the guys who created it barely mentioned they never go to tomorrowland or reference the tomorrowland of our world the one at the disney theme parks and it's not really clear how that world fits with the tomorrowland here this mystical place I just I, it was weird to me how how much the the build up to the movie was about the mythology, but then kind of how empty that mythology was once we saw the movie. Yeah, you know that part in Paris is really visually striking, like it's beautiful. But that was also the part of the movie that I actually I started feeling very frustrated because when they get there, it's after this whole kind of setup and this like uh, teleportation thing. And then they end up somewhere else where they also need to teleport. And it just feels like I think one of the problems that the movie clearly has, which is to be like, what do I do? How do we fill this time if we're not going to get to Tomorrowland till the end? Right. But like, what do we do as we're kind of running in place until then? And as much as I think I, I admire some of the touches in that part, it also did feel like a whole unnecessary segment, uh, given, you know, how they got there. But I, I did like the sequence of the house that you mentioned all of these booby traps. And that I think was maybe my favorite action sequence in the movie in that it almost has a touch of the, the action that you would find in an animated movie. Mm. Like it's all of these little bits of detail that go by almost so quickly. Uh, there is like this very kinetic 
physicality to it. It almost has the feel of like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. It did, exactly. Except yeah. with like all of these futuristic high-tech gadgets built into this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. Right. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I think that that, you know, Brad Bird, I think, has a good eye for action, but a very a, a, an unusual one because he's come from this animated world where there's, a, you know, physics are a little different. And then that was the place I most appreciated it. I, I, I like the way you put that, and I do think there is sort of an animated sort of style to that action. The The problem I had there and, and throughout the film in, in some extent was the bad guys who are chasing our heroes throughout this are sort of this vague force of dark-suited, kind of all-looking-exactly-alike guys. We don't really learn a lot about them. And they reminded me so much of, like, the agents from The Matrix, which is supposedly the sort of movie that Tomorrowland is presenting itself as being against. The Matrix, a very dark, dystopian vision of a future where the world has been ruined. And I just found in attempting to kind of present an alternative to that sort of film, they ended up resorting to all the things that those movies do and, and, and making kind of a, a shadow of it, a, a, a weak imitation of it. That's interesting. Actually, the kind of climactic evil speech is like the climactic evil speech in The Matrix in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that's, I you know, I hadn't made that connection really. Like, though you're very right. Like the bad guys especially do resemble the Matrix bad guys. And, and without spoiling the ending at all, I would say that the ending as well sort of becomes one of these generic sci-fi destroy the big thing in the sky kind of movies. You know, for a movie that really wants to position itself as an alternative, and I wanted it to be that alternative, I just didn't feel like it delivered on that on that promise at all. Yeah, we haven't talked about the performances at all. There is one thing, as much as... I'm not entirely sold on Britt Robertson, who is the main character and kind of is being sold as like the next up and coming actress. You mm. know, uh, I did love that the character, her character was written as essentially gender neutral, like, and was cast as female. Right. That this is a character who has defining characteristics that I think would normally maybe like 10 years ago be cast as this like freckle face, cute young kid. And instead she's a girl, but she's, you know, really into engineering. She's really into space travel. She's really into STEM basically. She's a, and as much as I think that there's a little, little light on characterization other than being like a perky dreamer, spunky, spunky. Yes. Baseball Optimistic. cap wearing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that there is something that I think is very forward looking about that aspect. I, I like that. And I also like the fact that Athena, this other character is also a young girl that this is a movie about science fiction and futurism and that the two leads really, I mean, George Clooney is actually in a, a more of a supporting role that the two leads are female. I mean, and it's coming after Mad Max. I, I like the fact that we are seeing some more, you know, a little bit more equality in the gender sense uh, coming out of these blockbusters. That's great to see. That said, it would have been nice to get a little bit more of a character for her. And it also would have been nice. This is a character that's constantly described, again, Matrix-like as being the chosen one, the special one, the one who can fix everything in Tomorrowland. And I would have liked to have seen her do something genuinely smart. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of talk about her being special and smart. And we really don't see her do much of anything special or smart. She mostly runs around asking questions of Athena, of Frank. What's going on? Who are these people? Where are we going? What is this? And I, I, it's so frustrating to see the smart character reduced to the sort of not being able to figure these things out on her own. Right. And also that her the, 
the thing that she does that really brings out all of this interest, Tomorrowland interest in her, is something that I was like, it's pretty questionable. The fact that she keeps sabotaging <laughs> the demolition of this NASA site because basically she doesn't want it to be taken down. Right. I like the fact, though, there that that sort of represents her trying to work against a dark future, essentially. That she sort of believes that we need NASA as an optimistic force in the world. You know, space travel. It's, it's very, I, to me, that felt in keeping with the message of the movie. Yeah, I can understand it. Except then I feel like, I don't know, that, that it comes across as bratty in practice. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, it's interesting, though, that this movie and Interstellar both have this very kind of like, we need to invest in space travel. Like, almost like very openly, we need to reinvest in space travel message. Yes. and And also have fields of... Grain in this wheat. case, wheat in this case, and then corn in Interstellar. Yeah, it's very it's, interesting. It, they link it directly into this very like heartland American, like Americana imagery. Yes, that somehow space travel is directly tied to agriculture, which is an interesting link to make. But you're right, both films seem to go there. I have to admit, I was a little disappointed by Britt Robertson's performance. I think it's maybe, as we've said, more of an issue of the screenplay. She's not given a ton to do. I wasn't really clear how old she was supposed to be. I did think throughout that as much as I appreciated a female lead being cast in this, that in another movie in Hollywood, she would have been George Clooney's love interest. <laughs> like she absolutely, like they would have absolutely not blinked at that. It's possible. <laughs> but, but she's supposed to be a teenager in this, just an old looking teenager. And and she's an older actress. She's in her 20s. Right. So it, it was, I felt that was a little confusing. The performance that I really liked and the character I thought was the most interesting was this Athena character played by Rafi Cassidy. She gives a very interesting performance. I'm, I don't want to say too much about the character because i think that's one of the more interesting surprises in the film but she brought an interesting texture and i liked whenever she showed up i thought whenever she appeared on screen things got more interesting and i did like the one scene where the way because the casey character asks a lot of questions and the way that she sort of shut that down i thought was kind of hilarious actually but yeah i feel like she's really the only dynamic performance in the movie george clooney is not bad but he's just he's kind of sleepwalking through this a bit i feel like you know he's just kind of mildly grumpy and then and then kind of not mildly grumpy after a while well it's another performance where he's supposed to be so smart he's a genius he's playing this genius frank but what does he do that actually seems Smart. Yeah, the only interesting aspect is his kind of romantic past, which is, I think, the only, like, maybe sharp-edged moment in the movie and uh, one that I actually really liked as it comes up towards the end. You're giving me speculative eyebrows. Yeah, I would. I, interesting is one word to describe it. I would say maybe slightly or unintentionally creepy is oh, another yeah. way to but describe that's, it. It's kind of... I mean, it's right. It's it's science fiction, and it's based on on ideas and seeing them through. And this is one of them. I I don't know. I it was like the only I thought like kind of memorable like development in the movie. Let's just wrap things up here by discussing. I think we have to talk a little more about the visuals, the look of this film, the look of Tomorrowland. And I also wanted to mention briefly the the score by Michael Giacchino, which I thought does a lot of the heavy lifting here that's called upon to really inspire us. And I felt like in a better movie, it really would become a, a kind of a, 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 an appreciated score, a score that would be remembered because I thought it had some really lovely moments. And I found myself at times less interested with the visuals than I was with the score. And I found myself really drawn into the music and kind of wanting the characters to maybe talk a little bit less so I could enjoy the music. I thought that, that was very well done. Yeah, I agree. And I think that it, as you said, it kind of brings more 
emotional heft to the movie than is maybe there in the performances or dialogue. But I don't know. He always does great work, so it's nothing nothing new. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of the visuals, I think that its best idea, which is the one that it's been leading with, is the one in which you have this normal present day and then touching this pin brings you into this glowing world of the future, this like gleaming chrome city out on the horizon and that has all of the promise of all of this technology. And I think that that sequence is really the one that encapsulates all of this sense of wonder that Brad Bird clearly wants the whole movie to be filled with and that the whole movie doesn't really otherwise reach that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I don't know that any part of it after that really gets back to that moment for me. In terms of the sense of awe. I didn't even really feel like that big moment with the with the touching the pin, getting this sort of tour, even lived up to all of that hype to begin with. And then and t- it's really the thing that has to carry you through the rest of the movie, because as you said, it takes so long to get back to Tomorrowland that this is the glimpse where it needs to be so overwhelmingly beautiful and exciting that for the rest of the movie, we have to be with Casey as she struggles to get back there. That that's that's the motivation. And it. It just felt a little generic to me. Uh, I, I don't know what exactly they could have done. I think maybe the fact that it felt very CGI heavy, and I'm not necessarily someone who believes that practical effects are 100% or automatically better, but these effects, they, they felt it felt very much like I was standing behind Britt Robertson as she was on like a green screen, and not so much as I was standing behind Britt Robertson as she was walking through Tomorrowland. It never felt all that real to me. And perhaps you could argue that because it's coming from this pin, and it is in some ways not real, that that's that's perhaps what they were going for. But I think I needed to feel more of the pull of Tomorrowland, and I think in that sequence, and maybe in general... That was something that I was definitely missing. Well, I think that just feeds into the the kind of larger issue of Tomorrowland maybe not being that great a place. <laughs> the, the, the movie kind of loves the idea of Tomorrowland, but never quite settles on its physical whole. Yeah. You know, that it's... It, how can it? When you set up this ideal that is the promise of technology and the future and wonder and awe and what humanity can accomplish if they only if humanity can only believe in itself. I, I mean, like, whenever you actually try and put that on screen, it's never going to live up to that. And I, I, I mean, I think in some ways, the movie runs into limitations it sets up for itself. I, th- uh, I think I, you're right. I mean, the way you put that, that it's more in love with the idea of Tomorrowland and the place... That's, for me, the movie in the nutshell. It is so in love with the idea and the, and the message they're trying to convey that they lose the, the forest for the trees, that they become so wrapped up in the metaphor. And everything in this movie is like a metaphor for itself. The early scene with Frank and his jetpack, where Hugh Laurie, who plays the judge of this contest, is saying, well, what's the point of this thing? And he says, it, it's fun. And in being fun, it'll inspire people. People will look at this thing, and they'll see people in a jetpack, and it'll make them think anything is possible. And it's like the movie is saying, the jetpack is Tomorrowland. This movie doesn't have a point, but it is fun. And if you have fun with this movie, you will be inspired, and you will be inspired to create a better tomorrow. Like, that happens over and over again, that the movie is so focused on that message that they can't get back to making the story the thing that's going to make people actually want to return to this movie, to return to Tomorrowland, you got you to gotta give them something to enjoy besides the lecture. 
Well, it's funny, you know, when you were bringing up the the launch of Tomorrowland in Disneyland. I mean, even in those early days, it was more about the idea of Tomorrowland than the reality. Like that early Tomorrowland was mostly made up of sponsored displays from like Monsanto and Dutch Boy Paint. That is true. So, so even maybe it's very true to the idea of Tomorrowland in that regard, in that it can never quite, the reality of it can never quite live up to the ideal. Well, Tomorrowland is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. When we come back, I'll share some thoughts on my time at the just-closed Cannes Film Festival. Plus, Film Spotting Nation weighs in on Brad Bird's best film. Stay with us. SVU listeners will notice this is not a standard episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. We're doing something different this week as we're filling in for Adam and Josh on the Film Spotting Mothership, but we couldn't let two weeks go by without recommending some VOD titles, so it's time for Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsors, Movies on Demand on Cable, and I have the picks this week. Allison, the first one, is a very good film, the latest from Jody Lee Lipes, one of my favorite young cinematographers and directors. As a cinematographer, he shot Tiny Furniture and Martha Marcy May Marlene. He's worked on some episodes of Girls, which I'm assuming is how he got his next gig, which I was very impressed to see. He is the DP of Judd Apatow's Trainwreck. Wow, I didn't know that. Yes. That's great. We'll see if it looks any different than Judd Apatow's other movies. I hope it does. (laughs) Uh, As a director, Jody Lee Leipz has made the documentaries Brock and Wright, Good Times Will Never Be the Same, and the lovely ballet film New York Export Opus Jazz, which is sort of an update, kind of a modernization of a classic Jerome Robbins piece. Now, Ballet 422, which is his new film and is available now on VOD, is also about the world of ballet, but it's less of a performance film and it's more of a documentary. It follows this very young choreographer named Justin Peck as he crafts a new work from its earliest conception to its opening night performance. After a few opening title cards, there's no interviews, there's no explanations. It is just all fly-on-the-wall footage of Peck as he goes about his work. 
Jody Lee Lives has a beautiful eye for dance, and I think he's just a naturally gifted storyteller. I love the way he tells stories visually here with camera work, with editing, without interviews, without people explaining what we're seeing, just letting us watch the events unfold. And the ending of this movie is really fantastic. It's such a knockout. It really recontextualizes everything we've seen. It really makes you rethink about everything else that's come before it and makes it clear that Ballet 422 is it's about artists and this particular artist, but it's about the work of an artist. You know, artists have talent. You know, we might say, oh, this guy is a genius. But even geniuses, even people with talent have to work. And I think that's what this movie really gave me, the idea of the grind of being a great artist. Yeah, I love the ending as well. And it also really reinforces how fleeting a work ballet can be, Mm. that it is something that is performed and that doesn't live on in a particular record other than in this documentary that we're watching. That's that right. something that you watch in the moment. And all that work that goes into that one or maybe a couple of performances, how much effort is expended to create this thing that doesn't last, that's ephemeral. Yeah, it's powerful stuff, and it looks really great. Jody Lee Leip's a very talented young filmmaker. So that's Ballet 422. That's available now on VOD. Also available now on VOD is a documentary I'm very much looking forward to checking out. It's called Magician. The Astonishing Life and Work of Orson Welles. And I think the title probably explains everything you need to know, but let me give you the official description here. Magician, The Astonishing Life and Work of Orson Welles looks at the remarkable genius of Orson Welles on the eve of his centenary. The enigma of his career as a Hollywood star, a Hollywood director, and for some, a Hollywood failure, and a crucially important independent filmmaker. And I've read books about Orson Welles. I've seen... Maybe I've, I might have missed one or two of his movies, but I've seen just about everything he's made. He's just an endlessly fascinating figure, I think, for anyone who's interested in movies. So I'm not sure how much I'll learn from from another documentary, but I'm very curious to see this one. So that's Magician, The Astonishing Life and Work of Orson Welles. That's available now on VOD. And finally, another film I'm looking forward to checking out. It is called Good Kill, and it is directed by Andrew Nichol. And it reunites Andrew Nichol with the star of his movies Gattaca and Lord of War. That's Ethan Hawke. He stars in the film. I'll read you the plot description of this one. A Las Vegas-based fighter pilot turned drone pilot fights the Taliban by remote control for 12 hours a day, then goes home to the suburbs and feuds with his wife and kids for the other 12. But the pilot is starting to question the mission. Is he creating more terrorists than he's killing? Is he fighting a war without end? Uh, so that's Good Kill. Have you seen that one, Allison? I have not yet. Yeah, I've, it's gotten fairly positive reviews. I just saw, I think, William Friedkin, famous filmmaker, excellent filmmaker, um, just uh, touting it on Twitter earlier today, saying that not a lot of movies really touch him and speak to him, and this movie did, and you need to check it out. So that's a that's about as good a recommendation as you're going to get. That certainly convinces me to check it out. That's Good Kill, and that is available now on VOD. Something happens at midnight When the world is torn and frayed I'm in love with the daylight But find it hard when we What do you do on Sunday? Nothing in particular. What do you do? Oh, nothing lately. Maybe you'd like to come visit me sometime. You're welcome to. At least there's some pretty country around where I live. Would you like to come visit me this Sunday? Yes. Not sure the sexual tension on display there plays quite as well on the radio. You're listening to Film Spotting. That's Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara there in a scene from Todd Haynes's Carol, 
which was one of the big hits coming out of the Cannes Film Festival, which closed last Sunday. And as luck would have it, Allison is fresh off the plane from her two weeks in the midday sun, as Roger Ebert once put it, describing the Cannes Film Festival. And you're going to tell us about some of these films. You saw most of the big prize winners. You have a couple other recommendations to give us. Let's start with Carol. That was certainly one of the most discussed, most praised movies at the festival. Did you think it lived up to the hype? I did. I think it was my favorite film that I saw there this year. You know, Todd Haydens hasn't made a movie since it, for eight years, I think, since wow. I'm not there. You know, he had Mildred Pierce in between, but like it's long awaited. Anticipation was very high. And I think that it, you know, fulfilled every wish that people had uh, for the most part who were there. It's really this kind of great, sumptuous love story. It's all like told in like hidden, you know, kind of secret glances and in subtext in totally normal dialogue with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara uh, in 1952 New York. And it evokes Far From Heaven, Gaines's earlier film, a bit in its depiction of a romance that's forbidden by the times. But I think it also does something different in having this romance that builds where the characters halfway through essentially have run away with each, like run away together and yet have never mentioned a single word about romance or like what they're doing. It's entirely done uh, in, in like the subtext and I don't know, it evokes um, brief encounter a bit as well. And uh, you know, I I think that uh, that's, that's a good description of it. It really is uh, a wonderful movie. And that was the, Best Actress winner at the festival for Rooney Mara specifically. That would happy with that award. Yeah, it's. I, I would say Blanchett has the showier role. She is, you know, this object of desire who sweeps into this younger girl's life and uh, kind of changes the way she looks at the world. But Rooney Mara is definitely is this very is this very in this very intense observer role. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, and I, I think she does a lot with it. It's very impressive. Interesting though that if. Kate Blanchett is the flashier performance that she did. She didn't win, and that Rooney Mara won the award. Yeah, I think it's just because it's maybe what we would expect from Kate Blanchett now. It's a role, I think, along the lines of the type of role, a, a role in which the character is kind of performing as well as the actress. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Rooney Mara does something different, which is part of the reason they they saluted her. Do we think this will be a, an Oscar contender? Yes, though I hate kind of dooming a movie with that description. <laughs> All right. But certainly it's coming out in December. It is in prime Oscar territory. All right. Well, we'll leave that there then for now. Let's move on to the Palm d'Or winner of this year's festival, which was a film entitled Deepon by Jacques Odiard, a filmmaker we both like. Yeah. You know, he is coming off of the really terrific prison movie A Prophet mm-hmm. from a few years ago and the equally terrific former killer whale trader turned amputee meets fighter romance one of those rust and bone uh, which i really loved and deepan is different in that it uses a trio of first-time actors and they play sri lankan refugees who pretend they're basically strangers who have been assembled into a family in order to use these passports to to get out of the country and they end up in france where they're put in in housing projects outside of Paris and given work there. And it's about how they both deal with this playing house as a family, even though they are totally unrelated. And also about how their immigrant experience, their just the immigrant experience of coming to a new country is modified by also having to learn the rules of 
being in a high crime neighborhood of learning things like he's appointed as a caretaker, Deepan, the main character, and has to be told, like, don't go into this area until the drug dealers are finished. You can't clean it until they're done for the day. It has an ending that I am still very kind of not sure how I feel about, but everything up into that is really just delicately done and a really uh, an interesting twist on the idea of an immigrant, a movie about an immigrant experience with some great performances. I, I liked it a lot. It was kind of a surprise winner. It wasn't one that people were talking about as a contender, but it's. I'm pretty happy to see it win. Did you have a, a movie that you would have voted for for the Palm Door ahead of it? I don't know that you you kind of pick ones that you you guess what you think will win, right? Okay. Which uh, I was expecting, Son of Saul, which I did not get a chance to see at the festival, but it was an early favorite for a lot of people, and it ended up winning the grand prize, which somewhat confusingly is actually the <laughs> second place award at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah, so it did all right. Can you describe what that one very briefly is? It's about a Jewish man who works it's set in the Holocaust, and it's about how he cleans out the bodies um, of his fellow Jews and wow. then finds someone who may be his son. Interesting. It's a and, comedy. <laughs> and that won the second place prize. Yes. But Deepan took the palm door. Yes. And that one also, it should be noted, it's from a first-time filmmaker, though, um, a Bellatar protege. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the film that actually won the jury prize, which I believe is technically the third place prize at the Cannes Film Festival. This is probably one of the two or three movies I'm most looking forward to seeing myself. It's from another filmmaker we very much like, Yorgos Lanthimos, and it's The Lobster. The yes. Lobster. Tell us about The Lobster, because well, I'm dying to hear about this movie. I've been so looking forward to it. Yeah, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos is coming off of Dogtooth, which is a film we both like a lot, Alps. And this is his English language debut, and starring Colin Farrell as a newly single man who ends up where all single people do in the world in which the film is set, this odd deadpan world which is in this coastal resort where everyone single has been rounded up and is given 45 days to meet a new partner. And if they can't do that, then they are turned into an animal. <laughs> <laughs> and this is treated with great seriousness. Um, and the, the resort is just filled with great, like wonderful absurdist touches, including like, it's like a uh, like a cruise almost. It's filled with organized events uh, that are awkward dances, uh, lectures that show you how much better it is to be part, part of a couple rather than to be single. Uh, when you get there at first, one of your arms is handcuffed behind your back so you can be reminded it's better to have two than one. Um, <laughs> and also you can extend your stay at the resort by every day they go out as a, as part of a hunting party and you can hunt down other single people who have fled and are living in the forest. Wow. You use uh, tranquilizer darts and they are brought to the resort. And each one you catch extends your stay another day. How about that? <clears throat> so it is it, the whole part that is set at this resort is like so perfectly deadpan and clever and just like wonderfully done. There's a third act that's a little weaker, though I, I think it's still very well done as well, involving Rachel Weiss and uh, Leia Seydoux. Oh. But it is overall a very funny, very cleverly conceived movie that I think is in the vein of his previous films, but also maybe a little lighter <laughs> and with a very good ending scene. 
But it sounds like you're saying if people did like those other movies we mentioned already, Dog Tooth, it sounds like it's yes. in the same vein. You, you certainly should be interested in this one. Yeah, this I think ca- this can overall was filled with a lot of movies that were people being like, here's the type of movie I make and mm. allow me to reassure you. Not like not many big surprises, but a lot of reassuring works from people who have kind of established the type of movie they do. All right, let's move on to the best director award. And this year it went to Ho Xiao Shen for his film, The Assassin. Yes. And this was a movie that a lot of people were saying was a favorite for the Palm d'Or. It was not one of my favorites uh, as much as I really like Ho Xiao Shen. Uh, this is, it's, I guess you could call it his take on like a wuxia movie, like on a, a martial arts martial movie. arts film. Though it's also very much a Ho Xiao Shen movie, so it's filled with it's very meditative, it's very deliberate. It's it's not a fast paced movie by any means, and I would say the total amount of fighting in it was maybe like two minutes. It's more of a movie. It's set in 19th, 9th century China. It's more of a movie about these kind of court intrigues and political intrigues in this rebellious province with Xu Qi playing this girl who was taken away or kind of sent away from her family for a while and was ends up being trained as an assassin and who has come back to kill her or has been assigned to kill her ex-fiance all of those details are actually very difficult to get from the movie it is one of the more opaque movies i saw at ken mm. extremely beautiful exceedingly beautiful every shot looks like a painting but ho shen's movies tend to be understated in general this was the first one i've seen where i wasn't sure what was going through any of the characters minds at any one time which made it more difficult to to kind of latch on to in any way maybe a little more of an acquired taste uh yes i would say so it is though really i think the most beautiful movie at Cannes. okay let's move on from some of the main awards and people can see the rest of the prize winners online they can find that let's talk just briefly about a couple more movies give me one movie that you would say people should keep on their radar it's going to come to theaters at some point in the near future one that you really feel people should check out well I really like this movie that was uh, off in the director's fortnight one of the sidebar kind of parallel programs to the main festival it is Green Room from Jeremy Saulnier whose last film was one that we both liked a lot Blue Ruin Mm -hmm. and this is one that is in a similar vein slightly bigger some bigger bigger stars in it and it is a punks versus skinheads movie uh in which there's a punk band that's led by anton yelchin who they end up in this remote venue in oregon um that leans a little too neo-nazi for their tastes but they need the money uh they need it to keep their tour going they're almost broke so they take it and it goes fine except then when they're about to leave, they end up walking in on a murder involving the headlining act and barricade themselves in the green room of the venue with the dead girl and her best friend, played by Imogen Poots, when they realize that no one is going to call the cops and that they have now witnessed. They are inconvenient witnesses to a murder. Uh, you also have Patrick Stewart as the the venue's owner and the local white supremacist leader. Oh, no. Yes. Patrick Stewart. Yes. Professor X. Yeah. He's, he's supposed good, to believe in peaceful he's, coexistence. He's a, he's a good time. And, you know, I think that Saulnier does this kind of great thing in terms of violence. And he does it in Blue Ruin. And he does it here as well, which is to portray it as these acts as committed by people who have never really done anything seriously violent in their lives Mm. and who fumble their way through these things and are horrified by them. And I think it really kind of 
gives more of a jolt to these things when suddenly you're reminded of you know the the kind of physicality and the fleshiness of these people and and how little they're actually prepared for these things that they're they're getting into it's more concerned with being fun than blue ruin is and it, it's definitely a very good time so i i like that one a lot it's a little movie but it is it's a lot of fun uh green room okay so it sounds like you had a pretty good time you're recommending a lot of movies you're giving me a lot of positive reviews here but there had to have been at least one turkey there had to have been something that disappointed you give me the biggest disappointment all right festival it's pretty easy it was one that was talked about a lot i think because it came from a name director and had a big name star has a big name star in it it is the sea of trees the latest film from gus van sant starring matthew mcconaughey as a man who travels to japan to commit suicide in this forest that is famous for it and i this movie was just, uh, you know, I think in the description, which is basically Matthew McConaughey and then Ken Watanabe, who he meets in the woods, like wandering through the woods, it sounded reminiscent of Jerry, which is a movie I like a lot from Gus Van Sant. This is not that movie. This is a movie that's very kind of maudlin and sentimental. It's filled with flashbacks in which Naomi Watts plays Matthew McConaughey's late wife, and we see their marriage, which is very troubled in a very screenplay type way. And uh, there's a lot of kind of filler. They doesn't, the movie kind of has to invent action to happen as they're wandering through the woods. And then it has a twist that I, it's somewhere between Nicholas Sparks and M. Night Shyamalan, I would say. I'm yes. speechless. I don't even know what, how to react to that description. Yeah, it's written by the guy who wrote Buried and ATM, like these very kind of gimmick-based, and I think very successful genre movies. Mm -hmm. But this is a kind of attempt to be a very emotionally weighty drama that also has a gimmick, and it it just does not work out. Okay. Well, so you say that would be one to avoid, as opposed to one to look for. It would. I I would also I will say this. This movie was kind of notoriously the first movie to be really booed this year at Cannes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, noteworthy also for the level of stars it contained. Sometimes movies are booed that I love. And sometimes it's a sign that a movie is just interesting and divisive and challenging. This is not a movie that is divisive and challenging. <laughs> it's it's a movie that kind of earned those boos as Ouch. much as as much as those boos can sting. Well, thank you for giving us a little roundup of all the films you saw at Cannes. It sounds like it was a pretty good festival this year. I feel like it's never a bad festival. Even a bad movie at Cannes is pretty interesting. It's tough It's tough to have a bad time at Cannes. I've been there. Yeah. It's pretty fantastic. It's pretty great. Uh, but it was great. I feel like I was, I was there. Who needs to go to the south of France in May <laughs> when you can have Allison describe <laughs> the movies to you? It's basically the same thing. Yeah, and, and a podcast extra later, we'll talk about what I ate. <laughs> If people want to read more about the films and the rest of your trip, can they do that at BuzzFeed? Yep, buzzfeed.com slash Allison Wilmore. <clears throat> so how about you, Vi? How's school? Nothing to report. You've hardly touched your food. I'm not hungry for meatloaf. Well, it is leftover night. We have steak, pasta. What are you hungry for? Tony Reidinger. Shut up. Well, you are. I said shut up, you little insect. Well, she is. Do not shout at the table. Honey? Kids, listen to your mother. She'd eat if we were having Tony Loaf. That's it! Back to Brad Bird now with that clip from his 2004 film, The Incredibles. 
couple of weeks back. In anticipation of a review of Tomorrowland, we asked you to name Brad Bird's best movie. Your options were The Iron Giant, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, or Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, or Gotical, as I prefer. Allison, how did it come out? Well, there was a definite preference for Brad Bird's animated work here. His live-action movie, Go to Call. Thank you. Of course. uh, Nabbed 7% of the vote. And then next up was The Iron Giant, which got 26% of the vote. After that, the Pixar movie Ratatouille with 28% of the vote. And number one, Brad Bird's really pretty great superhero movie at Pixar, The Incredibles, with 40% of the vote. Here is what listener Michael Lochner in El Cerrito, California, wrote about that. The Incredibles gets my vote because its best trick is also its simplest. Bird juggles a massive narrative arc and the movie never sags. Where other directors would have nervously rushed portions or permitted the quieter episodes to stagnate, The Incredibles covers a remarkable amount of territory without missing a beat or cheating a scene. Think on it. Bird's film takes its time with a documentary pre-title sequence, an extended multi-threaded monologue featuring both crime fighting, courtship, and local politics. Early chapters delving into the Parr's family life and Bob's disappointing career are compelling, funny, and unrushed. We see Dad's awkward return to solo hero work, the reinvigoration of his marriage, and the careful reveal of a duplicitous benefactor come villain. The family evolves, stakes shift, feelings are hurt, children come of age, schemes are foiled, priorities reconsidered, loyalties rediscovered, and killer robots obliterated. Dash revisits track and field, Violet makes a date, the baby rescues himself, narrative thread after narrative thread builds into a series of false climaxes, and though the film's arc reaches with dizzying ambition, Bird never misses a step. His movie is utterly entertaining throughout. It may lack the Iron Giant's thematic heft and gravitas, and Ratatouille generates richer textures with unlikelier tools, but neither flies as close to perfection with as little effort as The Incredibles. Wow, that's very well said by Michael. I'm not sure how much more we have to say about that. I don't know, though, that I would agree that uh, The Iron Giant even has more thematic heft and gravitas. There's a lot of thematic heft and gravitas in in, in The Incredibles. Yeah, and it tries to deal with a really not cookie-cutter idea of when you're special and what that means and how you fit in with the world. If I had a vote, I would have voted for The Incredibles. I haven't seen it in a few years. I wonder how how much I would enjoy it now. It's funny, when it came out, it felt very fresh. It wasn't the age of Ultron and a thousand other superhero movies. There was certainly a couple by that point, but we weren't in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We weren't really under this onslaught of nonstop superhero movies. It, it really felt fun and fresh at that point. I wonder if now it might feel a little more familiar in a way that might hurt it. Yeah, we are now really flooded with superhero movies. But I, I feel like this tries to grapple with themes that, smaller themes that actually turn out to be bigger ones than a lot of those superhero movies. I think that's fair. Ratatouille, I would have probably disqualified because he directed it, but that was really, he was kind of came in as like the closer on that one. There was There was other creative hands there. I think you really can't go wrong, though. They're all great movies on this list. I'll tell you which movie would not get my vote would be Tomorrowland. That's, I think, the only wrong answer here. Other than that, they're all very, very good films. Yeah, you know, he's a talented guy, and I'm looking forward to what he does next. Yeah, I still am, too.
I hope uh, The Incredibles 2, I think, is supposed to be his next movie. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Let's move on to this week's poll question. Next week's show will have the return of Adam and Josh and some sort of Cameron Crowe-related content. His new one, Aloha, with Bradley Cooper, Emma Stone, and Rachel McAdams, comes out this weekend. Crowe has been in a bit of a slump lately. Okay, 10 years. That's <laughs> lately, right? With 2005's Elizabethtown. And then there was a long period of silence, and then came We Bought a Zoo in 2011 with Matt Damon and Scarlett Johansson. Uh, now, it's we don't know yet whether Aloha will be a return to form for the director of Almost Famous. We haven't seen it yet. The press screenings here in New York are they're, they're late. They're not as early as you probably would hope them to be, usually when they're this late. It's not a good sign, but... No. Well, and also this one is preceded by some unfortunate things that very very rarely happen to a movie which is like emails that have been leaked from sony that have indicated their concern they weren't huge fans well. but no. what do those people know right he's cameron crowe this is the guy who made almost famous he made jerry Maguire. he made say anything so this week's poll question asks you to name your favorite cameron crowe hero and allison the options are well first up we have william miller that would be the character from Almost Famous, played by Patrick Fugit. Then we have Drew Baylor from Elizabethtown, played by Orlando Bloom. Jerry Maguire from Jerry Maguire, as played by Tom Cruise. And Janet Livermore slash Steve Dunn. Those would be the two characters in Singles, played by Bridget Fonda and Campbell Scott. And finally, of course, Lloyd Dobler from Say Anything, played by John Cusack. Intentionally left out of this is Cruz's turn as David Ames from Vanilla Sky and Matt Damon's Benjamin Mee from We Bought a Zoo because Adam has deemed them ineligible. I assume I assume that We Bought a Zoo would have been the overwhelming winner. So to disqualify, just to make it <laughs> fair, I'm assuming that's why Adam decided to leave it off the list. Allison, if you're picking someone from this this group of five, who would get your vote? Your favorite Cameron Crowe hero? William Miller. I really love Almost Famous, and I really like that performance. Yeah, I have to assume that he's probably going to be the winner here. If I had to guess, that would be my guess. I think probably number two would be Lloyd Dobler. Yeah. People love Lloyd Dobler. Does, People he, love Say Anything. He, does, uh, he, he woos like no other. That's true. I tell you, if I was in charge of the poll, if I had a, a voice in making the poll, the, the one that I would have had maybe I would have pushed to try to get on here, who's not on this list, although it was not a... Cameron Crowe directed movie. Fast Times at Ridgemont High was a Cameron Crowe written movie, and I love Jennifer Jason Lee's character Stacy in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It'd be, if it was between Stacy Hamilton from Fast Times and William Miller from Almost Famous, that would be a tough vote. Yes, uh, and uh, an interesting one, too. Yes, I agree. Well, you can cast your vote now at filmspotting.net, and if you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're writing from. Warning, the Filmspotting Top 5 may trigger flashbacks of memories of your time on Mars. Top 5 sci-fi movies currently available via streaming are next. Stay with us.
It's time to start running! On your marks! Get set! Killian, I'll be back. Only in a rerun. Go! Welcome back to Film Spotting. Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore from Film Spotting SVU taking over the Film Spotting mothership this week. And that amazing clip was from 1987's The Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Family Feuds. Richard Dawson is helping us set up this week's top five sci-fi movies currently available for streaming. And yes, The Running Man is currently available for streaming on Netflix. You're welcome. <laughs> It is fantastic. Allison, how many times have you seen The Running Man? Once, I think. Shame on you. Not all of us wrote our master's theses on Arnold Schwarzenegger. You need to watch it at least six more times. You won't really get it. (laughs) I promise you, until like viewing four or five, that's where it all starts to coalesce. Trust me on this. Anyway, admittedly, we are doing a pretty broad top five this week. And Film Spotting has done a bunch of top fives before about science fiction. All the way back on Film Spotting number 20, before the show was even called Film Spotting, Adam, an original co host and current Film Spotting producer, Sam Van Halgren, did their top five sci fi movies. And over the years, Film Spotting's also done top fives like top five moon movies, top five movie dystopias, top five time travel movies. But we're going general here because we're throwing in the caveat that these have to be available currently on streaming because that's what Film Spotting SVU is all about movies you can watch at home right now. Besides the streaming component, Allison, did you have any rules when you were formulating your list? Anything at all? Uh, I mean, mostly just, you know, in fundamental defiance of the idea of a top 10. I disregarded any movie I'm just tired of talking about or hearing about at the moment. Okay. Uh, no matter how iconic. Also, conveniently, a lot of very iconic movies are not available to stream right now. You know, the Star Wars films are not available for streaming. I, I, do, I don't know if they've ever been, actually. I don't um, think so. I think, you know, neither Blade Runner 2001 or the Alien series, which I think made this uh, a fun exercise to figure out what's out there and currently available that yes, and I really we, love. We should specify. Some people, when they say streaming, sometimes they also include, and we do on our show, we discuss things that you can rent, things that are available to rent. But for the purposes of this list, we didn't want anyone paying anything extra for what they're already getting. So this had to be things that were available on a streaming service that you're paying for already. There's no additional rental fees involved. So Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu Plus, those sorts of sites. Allison, you want me to go first here? Yes, please. All right. My first pick is not The Running Man, and it's not Terminator 2 Judgment Day, although that is a very fine science fiction film starring Arnold Schwarzenegger that's also available on Netflix. It's Total Recall. (laughs) The original film, obviously, not the Len Wiseman remake from a couple of years ago. This version from 1990 is directed by Paul Verhoeven, and it is also currently available to stream on Netflix. Schwarzenegger plays Douglas Quaid, a humble construction worker who dreams of going to Mars. His wife, played by Sharon Stone, refuses to go with him, so instead he decides to buy an artificial memory implant of a trip to Mars from a company called Recall. And the implant is supposed to give him the memory of being a secret agent traveling to the Red Planet from Earth, but... 
something goes wrong with the upload, and suddenly Quaid is on the run from bad guys who claim he's really Hauser, a former bad guy himself who's been brainwashed and dumped on Earth to keep him out of trouble. But did something really go wrong with that upload? One of the fun things about the original Total Recall is the way that it juggles these two simultaneous interpretations. On the one hand, it does seem like Recall botched something. On the other hand, everything the Recall salesman tells Arnold Schwarzenegger in that sales pitch scene, everything he says is going to happen in the dream happens in the film. And throughout, Paul Verhoeven, the director, keeps messing with the audience's expectations. And I think it's a very effective use of science fiction as exploring the way that we experience life and we think about memories and our sense of self. And in this movie, an entire personality could be a creation of a machine. Everything you think about yourself, your whole marriage, your eight years of marriage could be invented and stuck inside your head six weeks earlier. Talk. I said talk. I'm not your wife. I hell you not. I swear to God, I never saw you before six weeks ago. Her marriage is just a memory implant. You think I'm stupid? Ah! Remember our wedding? It was implanted by the agency. Falling in love? Implanted. Our friends, my job, eight years together. Suppose all of this was implanted too? The job's real. The agency set it up. The world of Total Recall is fantastic too. The full wall flat screens. I feel like we're probably only a year or two away from that at this point, right? They have high-tech x-ray machines. They have these fully articulated facial masks that can be taken off and explode like grenades. Those are pretty cool. And because of those multiple interpretations, I think it's a movie that holds up wonderfully on multiple viewings. You mentioned, Allison, you only want to talk about movies today that you really Right now, you're passionate about. I never get tired of watching Total Recall. (laughs) Watching it again earlier today for the umpteenth time. Way more than the six Running Man viewings, I promise you. I was just noticing all these little clues, little nods, the earliest scenes. They're all there deliberately setting up stuff that I had never even noticed before. And I think sci-fi movies, especially ones that are set in Alternate worlds, alternate futures, they should be intoxicating. You should want to return to them over and over again. I wouldn't say Total Recall's world is exactly you know, optimistic, but it is intriguing, and I always love returning back to it. So that's my number five, Total Recall, which is available now on Netflix. I love Total Recall. Oh, hooray! <laughs> have you seen that one more than once? I have, absolutely. Good, okay. Yes. Uh, so my, my number five pick is a movie that is... <laughs> In some ways, about how boring space can be, which is what I like about it so much. It is Dark Star, which is available for streaming on Fandor. This is the low-budget 1974 film from John Carpenter, who wrote it with star Dan O'Bannon, who went on to write many other important sci-fi movies. And it really is one of the best movies I've ever seen to engage with how deeply boring space travel could be, would be, in addition to being filled with awe and wonder. Uh, The crew of the Dark Star are crammed into this tiny dark space together. They have been traveling for years. And on Earth, this is already for decades because time is uh, moving differently for them. And their job is to blow up planets that might cause humanity future problems when they go off to colonize other, other worlds. And... The crew is basically going insane, in part due to this mission, which seems unending and also kind of terribly counterproductive, just blowing up planets as they go along, but also in part due to the 
kind of like workplace problems that they're having. You know, the they get too many chicken flavored liquid meals from the, the food, the thing that makes their food. Uh, they argue over things like whether or not they should bother to name a new star they discover and whether the old boss who died in a tragic accident would have named the old the new star that they discover. One of them has been keeping a pet alien that is in one of my favorite bits of character design, maybe ever, is a beach ball with claws. <laughs> Uh, and they are ultimately placed in a situation in which they have to try and persuade an artificially intelligent bomb having an existential crisis not to explode by kind of coaxing it and arguing with it. Hello, bomb? Are you with me? Of course. Are you willing to entertain a few concepts? I am always receptive to suggestions. Fine. Think about this then. How do you know you exist? What the hell is he doing? I think he's talking to it. Well, of course I exist. But how do you know you exist? It is intuitively obvious. Intuition is no proof. What concrete evidence do you have that you exist? Hmm. Well, I think, therefore, I am. That's good. That's very good. It is... Uh, really a kind of wonderfully darkly funny movie and I think that sci-fi does tend to be serious you know there are comedies but it is overall a a genre about big ideas and about uh, about technology and about kind of leaps of thought and the thing that I really love about Dark Star is the way that it kind of injects humanity back into this idea of of space travel and in a way in which it's filled with humanity's kind of flaws and also just like basic need to be entertained and to not inhabit a tiny you know floating vessel out in space very well because we're, we're really not naturally suited to do that it's got a real dr strange love air to it especially at the end but it also just has a, a sensibility that really feels all its own it's it, and and the fact that it is so low budget means that it holds up just as well now as it did then because it didn't hold up all that well then either. <laughs> you have a uh, you know a beach ball as your alien force, but it's really entertaining and I think very darkly clever. And uh, I I really like that it insists that you think about all of the mundane aspects of fabulous space travel and how it might wear on you. Um, so that is Dark Star. And it is currently streaming on Fandor. It's not a movie I like as much as you do, but it is a fun movie. And I think it's worth mentioning. It's John Carpenter's first movie. And I think Carpenter is a guy known primarily for horror, Halloween and The Fog. I don't think he gets enough credit as a sci-fi director, as being a great sci-fi director. And purely uh, accidentally here, my number four movie is another John Carpenter film. It's Escape from New York from 1981, which you can watch now on Hulu Plus. And I think the movie would actually make a nice double bill with Tomorrowland, actually. An interesting one. It's set in the year 1997 after the crime rate rockets 400% and Manhattan Island is turned into a maximum security prison. Remember that time, Allison? Yeah. Remember in 1997 when New York City became a toxic wasteland and the U.S. government turned the whole place into a super jail? It was a good time to buy, really. (laughs) Prices were down, I think, if you were smart and got in the market then. I guess we know now why everyone lives in Brooklyn was (laughs) 
you know, when Manhattan became a super jail, you had to go somewhere. So Kurt Russell stars as Snake Plissken, a super soldier who's been convicted of attempted robbery, who's about to be sent to New York prison when Air Force One crashes into lower Manhattan and Snake is given a deal, a full pardon if he can rescue the president, played by Donald Pleasance, and bring him out alive in 24 hours. You go in, find the president, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. 24 hours, huh? I'm making you an offer. Bullsh**. Straight, just like I said. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Get a new president. We're still at war, Pliskin. We need him alive. I don't give a about your war. Or your president. Is that your answer? I'm thinking about it. Think hard. Escape from New York is exactly the sort of movie that Tomorrowland is railing against, but basically, it's bleak, it's cynical, and even though it takes place over the course of 24 hours, it seems like the whole thing takes place at night. It's, it's daytime for maybe like 20 minutes in this movie. Everything else is pitch black, and that really suits the mood of the film. The difference, though, is that Escape from New York is bleak and cynical and incredibly satisfying, and... It may not convince you to take up engineering or astrophysics, but at least it entertains you very thoroughly for a hundred minutes. Rewatching the film last night, I was also really struck by the sense of momentum that Escape from New York has. Snake Plissken has this countdown watch on his wrist that tells him how much time he has left to find the president and bring him back out. And Carpenter cuts to it constantly, constantly. So you can always track the dwindling timeline. There's less and less time. He's got to get him out. He's losing time. And there are quieter moments, but there's very little exposition. It all comes out in the action and in the interactions between the characters because, again, Snake Plissken is on a deadline. He doesn't have time for small talk. And oh, how I wish Tomorrowland had less time for small talk. So... That is my number four. That is Escape from New York, and that is available now on Hulu+. Plus. All right. My number four is also available on Hulu+, Plus, and you can catch it on Netflix until June 1st when it supposedly vanishes, according to them. So uh, it is Godzilla, and it is the, the first film, the Ishiro Honda 1954 film, which launched a series, launched an iconic Japanese character and launched multiple remakes, including a recent one in the U.S. Um, that I think kind of did a great job of doing mo the monster bits and not such a good job of the people bits. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think that's, uh, you know, in part because it's it's really hard to get back to the real uh, the underlying unease that this original film embodied so well you know I, I think it did something that I always looked to science fiction for great science fiction for which is it figured out a way to give this form and narrative to what were at the time these present day anxieties you know uh, as much as there's a lot of camp to the larger Godzilla series as he fights multiple monsters and uh, sometimes he's a good guy and uh, there's a little bit of silliness there. You know, this first movie was legitimately kind of eerie and frightening and it it was all about these fears of nuclear power in, uh, and nuclear weapons specifically following World War II, you know, that the there's this rampaging giant monster who becomes this metaphor for a bomb while he's terrorizing Tokyo. And it also becomes a larger movie about the unease of the unforeseen consequences of scientific advances. Godzilla, 
was not created by the nuclear testing. He was always there. It's the nuclear testing that either woke him up or resurrected him or either summoned him somehow, like mankind's hubris, etc., etc. Always get the, bring the giant monster out of the ocean. Uh, this movie also, I think, was ahead of its time in, uh, you know, in the U.S. release in 1956. It got this whole other storyline with Raymond Burr to uh, make it more friendly for for U.S. audiences, really foreshadowing how these days uh, movies like The Transformers will have whole other or or like Iron Man to will have a whole other storyline set in China to please Chinese audiences. So, you know, really forward looking in that regard. But I, I think that it's great to look back at the original Godzilla just because of all of these fears it incorporates so well that I, I, I think later movies have had difficulty translating. And I think that that's, it's one of the reasons that the more recent one, as much as there was some stuff that I very much admired in it, kind of felt like it was lacking a core. You just don't have the relevance. Uh, you just have a giant monster and he's very cool looking, of course, but uh, you don't have that same kind of thread running through that this original really did so well. Uh, and that is Godzilla, streaming on Hulu Plus, and for a little while longer on Netflix. It's also streaming on Amazon Prime. Oh, it's and, all over the place. And it's such a fine film, we may hear a little more about it a little later on my list. Hmm. My number three film is the most recent film on my list from just last year. It's called Under the Skin. It is Jonathan Glazer's film about an alien, played by Scarlett Johansson, who's used as the cheese in a mousetrap for human beings, basically. She lures men into her van, drives them to a warehouse, and then drops them into a vat of black goo, where, let's just say, bad things happen to them. At a certain point, though, Johansson's character breaks her programming, or maybe rejects it, and from there she goes on kind of a journey of self-discovery through Scotland. I was trying to think of a way to describe the tone and the feel of this movie, and here's what I came up with, Allison. Often people praise movies about America by foreign filmmakers because they say that they show us what our country looks like from the perspective of an outside observer. And Under the Skin is kind of like that for all of humanity instead of one country. It shows us humanity from the perspective of an alien. And I mean that as a compliment. I guess you could mean that as an insult, but I really mean it as a compliment. It invites us through all these shots from the point of view of Johansson's character to really study these people and, and humanity in general, how people dress, how they act, how they talk, how they treat strangers, whether they act kindly, whether they act cruelly. And it's such a unique window into human nature and into masculinity and femininity, in part because a lot of the actors in this movie did not know they were actors in a movie. Scarlett Johansson really drove around Scotland in this van. She was picking up men and some of her completely unscripted conversations with these guys wound up as key scenes in the film. The film is based on a novel by Michael Faber, and I haven't read it, but as I understand it, it has a lot more detail, plot detail, and who this alien character is, and why she came to the Earth, and what exactly she's taking these men for. But Jonathan Glazer's version of Under the Skin doesn't have that stuff and it doesn't miss i think any of those details again maybe this is possibly a matter of personal preference but i really love when a sci-fi movie drops us into a world and lets us figure it out on our own without explaining every last 
detail. And in this case, leaving a lot of that stuff up to the imagination, I think it just makes the film moodier and scarier. You know, we are left to our own imagination to cook up what is the motivation for this character and what she's doing. And it it just lets us focus on what's important, which is this character's journey, emotional journey, not, well, this is the reason for this and this is the reason for that. Like, I feel like all that stuff is a lot of times it's superfluous. Less is more. I didn't invent that phrase. And I think it's a famous one for a reason. And this is a movie I've seen a lot. Maybe not as much as The Running Man, but a lot. And I have not gotten tired of rewatching it yet, re-exploring it yet, experiencing things from this perspective yet. I think it's a really, really incredible movie. And that is Under the Skin, which is available now on Amazon Prime. That is an incredible movie. And it was one I considered for my list, mm. though I'm glad I left it off so that we didn't have too much overlap. Yes. My next film is one that you mentioned earlier. And, you know, how could I do this list with you without having at least one Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> film on it? <laughs> Uh, it is Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Nice. Yes, which is currently streaming on Netflix. You know, on balance, I might uh, prefer, a, like, actually prefer James Cameron's 1984, The Terminator, uh, over this one. Terminator is not streaming. But like Alien and Aliens, Terminator 2 is the brawny sequel that manages to stand alongside the first film in a way that most sequels do not, in a way most sequels never come close. And it also manages the trick of having the scene-stealing bad guy from the first movie become a good guy in the second, you know, a trick that I think sometimes comes off as cheap in other movies, but that this one makes deeply satisfying. And I think one of the things that I like a lot about this movie uh, in taking like a look at some of it again quickly today was the ways in which it deals with obsolescence, with the idea of obsolescence, you know, even the unstoppable robot of the first movie, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, the world's most famous bodybuilder, like owner of, at the time, like one of the world's most famous bodies, gets shown up, you know, as technology moves forward. And that's true for this, the effects as well. You know, the, the T-1000's liquid metal form showcases what were 1991 cutting edge special effects, that time is always moving forward. And in a movie that is about technology and the fear of it. You have this story in which your flesh and blood star from the first movie gets shown up by your CGI star from the second one. And it curiously, for a movie that is so dependent on famous special effects, I think this one holds up very well because it never loses sight of that human element that you have this great robot character as played by Schwarzenegger and that he is placed against uh, an enemy that he admits himself is is more high tech than he is. And yet he finds a way to hold his own uh, and the characters find a way to hold their own by using their kind of human ingenuity and kind of uh, perseverance. You're not here to kill me. I figured that part out for myself. So what's the deal? My mission is to protect you. Yeah? Who sent you? You did. 35 years from now, you reprogrammed me to be your protector here, and this time. This is deep. 
I, I do not love where this franchise has been going since then. I'm uh, a little afraid of the upcoming one the, uh, and, and the twists that have been revealed in it. But I, I think these first two movies are pretty terrific uh, as action movies, as well as movies that embody technophobia in in ways that are entertaining, but also kind of stirring. I remember the dark futures of these movies really well, and they disturbed me at the time. And I think they continue to disturb me. And they make this fairly simple idea of computers taking over, of computers destroying humanity, into something very alarming. And I think that comes through in the first movie, and it certainly comes through in the second one. That is Terminator 2 Judgment Day, currently streaming on Netflix. An honorable mention for me. I probably We joked earlier, but I probably could have done a mostly Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> sci-fi list here. But I'm, I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad you mentioned it. And I liked what you said about how the future of these movies is so memorable. I mean, I still have vivid memories of the first time I saw Terminator 2 in the movie theater when I was 10 or 11 years old. I remember it opens in the future, and it pans across all of the skulls. And then there's the moment where the robot foot, the Terminator foot, crushes a yeah. skull out of nowhere. And I remember vividly jumping out of my seat with first with fear and then with kind of this overwhelming excitement as it <laughs> kicks off this insane opening battle sequence. It's a it's such a fabulous movie. So good. Good pick. Way to go. Yeah. I knew you'd like that. one. Yes, I did. I enjoyed it. And I have a feeling you like my number two film because it was your number four film and it is the original Godzilla and the American version of it is available all over the place, but specifically, you do want to watch the original Japanese version with the Japanese language and the English subtitles, and I know that one is available on Amazon Prime. And I thought what's interesting about the original Godzilla in the context of this podcast is that it is a contemporary of Walt Disney and the time that he was making Disneyland and Tomorrowland. This movie is from 1954, one year before Disney was preaching about the possibilities for the atomic age to bring about a peaceful and unified world. And here is Ishiro Honda reckoning with the absolute destruction that the atomic age had actually wrought on his home country. Less than 10 years removed from the atomic horror of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Honda and co-screenwriter Takio Murata envisioned this monster reawakened by nuclear testing as you said he's not created by it but he is brought forth by it right and i think people now when they hear godzilla maybe they think of the modern movie which i agree with you about has some great effects human beings talking like normal human beings was not one of those <laughs> effects but i think generally still people when they hear godzilla they probably think of mystery science theater they think of cheesiness they think of dubbed versions including the original version uh or the original movie godzilla king of the monsters but the very first godzilla the japanese version is not that it is genuinely upsetting it is it is scary and yes it is a guy in a rubber suit stomping on cardboard buildings but there's nothing cutesy about it and the actors take it very seriously and the black and white photography something about it the the monster the even in a rubber suit it looks better in black and white it just you know and they don't show him too much it's almost jaws like in the way that he's kept off screen for a long time and you just see sort of the the destruction that he leaves in his wake they shoot around him in a very smart way and i think the movie also engages with 
this idea of the morality of technology, that it isn't just, well, technology will save us, period, right? That there are things that technology can bring that are scary, and that not only is Godzilla this figure of technology, but that the potential device to kill him is this other nuclear-esque device, the oxygen destroyer, that could wreak its own amount of havoc. And I just think that the movie hangs around, and that even today it is still powerful, because even if it is a cynical film, that it's born from like these real-world experiences, and maybe that's what's missing from the new Godzilla, is that the, like, the fear, the paranoia, the terror that's embedded in this movie comes from real things. And the, the Godzilla of today, while it looks great, is, a, is kind of a fantasy. And maybe that's the difference. So I'm with you. I agree with you. Godzilla, the original Japanese version, available now on Amazon Prime. It's really interesting that you bring up that this movie was made uh, contemporaneously with Disney coming up with Tomorrowland. And I feel like that kind of reinforces for me this unease I have with the kind of westernness of the idea mm-hmm. of Tomorrowland because you're right like the the idea of like the grand promise of technology meant something very different if you were in Japan and you were just recovering from what technology you know from this direct uh encounter with technology at its most devastating and that I, it's something that I, I, you know, I think is an important point and one I'm glad you brought up. All right. Well, my number two pick is Solaris, which is currently streaming on Hulu Plus. This is the 1972 film from Andrei Tarkovsky, though I also really like Steven Soderbergh's 2002 version starring Tomorrowland's George Clooney, uh, which isn't streaming at the moment. Uh, I think the central quote of Solaris is this one, which one of the characters says very conveniently, I must tell you that we really have no desire to conquer any cosmos. We want to extend the earth up to its borders. We don't know what to do with other worlds. We don't need other worlds. We need a mirror, which is an encapsulation of some of the very complex ideas in this sci-fi movie, which is you know one of my great favorites about a planet named Solaris that Chris Kelvin, the main character, is sent to check up on uh, because the the explorers who are out there have encountered some problems, some mysterious problems, uh, and this this planet is filled with a ocean that's seemingly sentient, uh, and that the they kind of discover has powers beyond any of their expectations. Mostly that it it manages to conjure up physical incarnations of people from the visiting astronauts' minds, something they find greatly disturbing, including for Chris Kelvin, his late wife, Hari, who committed suicide years ago and suddenly is there with him again. And she is Hari, but she's also basically his memory of Hari, just created from what he retains of her in his head. And I, I, I think that this idea that it presents is so powerful that that Solaris is a mirror, but it's a mirror that allows these memories to come to life and that allows this version of a person that's only as she occurs in the head of someone else. It's not this woman being born again. It's his memories of her being brought to life, including her own suicidal impulses, you know, including her, her depression and including I also said the things that he loved about her and, and beyond that, I, the idea of Solaris is really one of the most kind of potent images in sci-fi for me. This idea that you travel to the edges of a faraway galaxy to find these intimate memories, to find these things from your past that 
as that quote says, the characters are not necessarily looking for grand new worlds, despite what they say. Uh, and I think that that really speaks to uh, the, this truth that is underneath a lot of these movies about exploration is that that actually what we want is to make new earths, right? To settle on them and to not bring something new, but to figure out a way to just spread mankind as it already exists out there. And in, in this case, mankind encounters this very alien force and has to reckon with it. And, uh, this is a movie in which one of the, the final sequence, the final scene is, I, I think, incredibly powerful. And I won't spoil it other than that it combines this intimate memory with this really foreign and fantastical image so well. It's a movie that I think still contains a lot of uh, mysteries that I feel like I I find every time I rewatch it. That is Solaris, and it is available on Hulu+. Plus. That's a good pick. The The original version would be a, definitely an honorable mention for me. The Soderbergh version, I need to revisit. I've only seen it one time. Don't remember loving it, but partly that's because it's one of the most, again, memorable theater-going experiences in my life because I saw that in suburban New Jersey in my hometown at a packed theater, probably opening night or opening weekend at least, and... 80% of the theater walked out over the course of the film. They hated it. They were throw, like making disgust noises as they were leaving. It was an intense revulsion on the part of a lot of the audience. So it was sort of an unfair experience to have that be the one viewing. I need to revisit that one. Uh, that's probably not the best atmosphere with which to appreciate this meditative sci-fi film, well, I would think. It's funny that you mention that because I remember seeing it in theaters and it was a very memorable experience for me too because I was seeing it with a friend who had just finished like walking the Pacific Coast Trail, so hadn't talked to anyone for like days, watched this movie, said he profoundly connected to it. Then he went and joined a Mostic, Gnostic monastery in San Diego, <laughs> and like I did not hear from him for 10 years. Wow. Yes. <laughs> that is a powerful film. Yes. All right. I'll have to rewatch that version, I guess. My number one sci-fi movie available on streaming is... Battlefield Earth. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Battlefield Earth isn't currently available on streaming, Allison. <laughs> I couldn't make it my number one. Isn't that a shame? It is a shame. But a close second in my mind to Battlefield Earth, one of the great masterpieces of world cinema, is another masterpiece of world cinema that is available on Netflix and Hulu, and that is Metropolis, Fritz Lang's 1927 science fiction film that really inspired, what, 75% of all sci-fi movies that followed? Maybe more? Maybe 80%? Its legacy is enormous, and frankly, I'm kind of shocked it's not in the film-spotting pantheon, that group of hallowed films that they're not allowed to use on Top Fives. I looked, I checked, thinking it might be on there, but it is not. I'm going to register my complaint with the home office as soon as we get off the air, but it works out for me because I get to talk about this film, which is truly a visionary piece of cinema. It was made 90 years ago. But it's actually set in 2026, so there's still time for it all to come true, Allison. It is set in the city of Metropolis, which is divided into the gleaming utopia above and the horrifying ghetto below, where the 99% of society essentially work themselves to death in squalor to provide for the 1% who live in idyllic conditions. So on second thought, maybe this movie actually has come true already, <laughs> 10 years ahead of schedule. The plot is, it's admittedly complex, maybe a little convoluted, which is why I encourage you to really make sure you see the complete Metropolis or Metropolis Restored. It seems like 
the, it, that's the same cut of the film with different names on different sites. It's the 148-minute version that returns about 30 minutes of footage to the movie that had they thought, you know, scholars, critics thought had been lost for decades, but was then found in an archive in Argentina in the early 2000s. It's probably as close as we're going to get to a director's cut. And for a movie like this, you want to see as close as you can to what the director originally intended. A lot of people talk about old movies like this, old science fiction, old effects-driven films, and say how dated their visuals look and how sometimes that ruins the movie for them. It takes them out of the movie. But I love what Roger Ebert wrote about this version of Metropolis and its special effects when it came out in 2010. He said, without all of the digital tricks of today, Metropolis fills the imagination. Today, its effects look like effects, but that's their appeal. Looking at the original King Kong, I find that its effects, primitive by modern standards, gain a certain weird effectiveness. Because they look odd and unworldly compared to the slick, utterly convincing effects that are now possible, they're more evocative. The effects in modern movies are done so well that we seem to be looking at real things, which is not quite the same kind of fun. And not to keep harping on Tomorrowland, but it's an interesting comparison there. This world of Tomorrowland, astonishing as it's intended to be, seems kind of ordinary. And the world of Metropolis it really feels otherworldly. It's beautiful and it's incredible. And even though it's impossible, in a way that makes it more beautiful and more incredible. So if you haven't seen it, admittedly, it's better on the big screen, which I've seen a few times on the big screen. Watching it at home, if you're going to do it, put away the phones, put away the iPads. You're going to need to focus because it's a silent film. You have to be paying attention to the subtitles. It is a dense story. But it will reward your attentive viewing, I promise you. So that's my number one, Metropolis, available on Netflix and Hulu. That's an honorable mention for me, mostly because I haven't seen it for years, and so uh, I don't feel like I could talk about it with the eloquence you did. But my number one pick is also an older movie. It is streaming on Hulu Plus, and it is La Jetée, Chris Marker's 1962 movie. It's only 28 minutes long, and is made up of only still black and white photos with one kind of exception and is still the most haunting and most beautiful sci-fi movie I have ever seen. It is about an unnamed main character played by Davos Hamich, who has become in a dark future in which humanity is living underground, the potential savior of mankind because he's able to withstand time travel thanks to this very strong memory, but vague and unplaceable memory he has of a woman standing on the jetty uh, at the airport, uh, seeing something kind of shocking. He thinks it might've been a death. And because of this, he's able to travel back in time using the time machines that the people in the future have and he is sent back into the past where he develops a romance with the woman from the jetty. And then he is sent into the far future where he's given technology that might save humanity. And then when it looks like he's going to be killed, he uh, manages to go back to the past once again. And this character is one of those kind of sci-fi martyrs almost. Uh, one that, like characters in Terminator in Predestination, which we talked about on a kind of recent-ish Film Spotting SVU episode, and 12 Monkeys, which is basically a kind of direct remake of Le Jeté, is a character who exists outside of time and is special because of it, but is also 
alone because of it, is kind of doomed because of it. And this character is one who, because of this strong memory, is able to do extraordinary things, but also is doomed because of it. And I think that, uh, among other things, the movie finds a real poignance in this, a real tragedy in this very abstract idea, but it also manages to make it this observation about filmmaking. You know, La Jetée is is not a film in the traditional sense. It's Or it's a film missing so many frames, right? You only get one frame every few seconds. But this one frame that has lingered in its main character's mind has shaped him. Uh, He can't escape it. He keeps coming back to it. And I, I think the ways in which it basically is the point in his life he comes back to twice. He is this Mobius strip of a person. Really make this story feel not just conceptual, but very profound and filled with longing. It's a really extraordinary movie that's influential as well. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's not Metropolis, I think, in but it, it, it has gone on to leave a mark on a lot of other recent films about time travel. And I think also to leave a mark in, in the kind of sadness of them in a way that I, I think is pretty exceptional. That is La Jetée. Chris Marker's 1962 Legete streaming on Hulu Plus. Another excellent film. Did you have any other honorable mentions we want to cite here? We've actually thrown out quite a few as we've been talking, but any others that uh, you left out? No, I I mean, there are a lot of great sci-fi movies out there. I think, you know, in this case, I tried to find some of my favorites that and then work backwards from there. But it is conveniently most streaming sites have a whole sci-fi page. Yes. So let me throw out a couple that I had here that I couldn't fit in. Uh, I wanted to mention the host Bong Joon-ho's film is available on Netflix and Amazon prime, kind of in the Godzilla mold of a sci-fi horror film with a monster, sort of a modern version of that. Very effective. I like both of the first two versions of the invasion of the body snatchers. 1956 is on Amazon prime and 1978, which is an awesome remake is on Netflix. You mentioned that there's not a lot of sci-fi comedies, but one that I really like, Galaxy Quest, is on Netflix. And lastly, I wanted to give a shout-out to a movie I almost put on my list, but we just talked about it on Film Spotting SVU number 76, which was our Technophobia podcast, so people can seek that out. But Strange Days, another sci-fi movie that I really, really like, Catherine Bigelow, that's an awesome movie. Could have made my list, but we just talked about it not that long ago, so I wanted to talk about some other stuff, but another movie... That is worth seeking out. That's available right now on Netflix. And those are our top five streaming sci-fi movies. But now we want to hear your picks. You can email your favorites to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Or find Filmspotting on Twitter, at Filmspotting, and at facebook.com slash filmspotting. Matt, you're a contributor over at Screen Crush, and you're at Matt Singer on Twitter. I write for BuzzFeed, and you can find me on Twitter at Allison Wilmore. At filmspotting.net, you can also find 10 years of show archives. And if you find yourself there, please take a moment to vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking you about your favorite Cameron Crowe hero. Playing in limited release in Chicago this week, 71, which is a new film set in Belfast in 1971 in the midst of the Troubles. The appeal here, it stars Jack O'Connell. One of uh, Film Spotting and Film Spotting SVU's favorites. He's the star of Startup and Unbroken. 
There's also Amor Fu, the true story of a 19th century German romantic writer and his quest to find a soulmate to join him in a suicide pact. Probably not a comedy either, that one. There's also Felix and Mira from Canada, a romance and spiritual crisis in the depths of a Montreal winter. And the one here that I'm really looking forward to seeing, when Marnie was here, that's, as far as we know, that's the final Studio Ghibli feature from the director of The Secret World of Arietti. I'm really looking forward to checking that one out. Have you seen that one yet, Allison? I have a screener sitting right next to my TV, and I can't wait to get to it. Oh, man. VOD of interest this week, Grace of Monaco, which debuted at last year's Cannes Film Festival, I believe. Didn't uh, go over all that well there. I think it wound up on the Lifetime Network and is now headed to VOD. That has Nicole Kidman, and it is directed by Olivier Dehan, who did La Vie en Rose with Mar- Marion Cotillard. I'm sure that was what they were going for, right? A sort of a biopic, a prestige biopic. Hoping to get probably Nicole Kidman an Oscar, but did, things did not work out that way. No, it's quite a you know journey to go from opening night at Cannes to Lifetime. But no disrespect to Lifetime, but it actually is a very good fit for Lifetime. Mm, all right. Well, in wide release next week, there's San Andreas. I think we mentioned it earlier in the show. That is Dwayne the Rock Johnson with lots of other ro- non-animated rocks. It's The Rock versus The Fault, basically. (laughs) A giant disaster earthquake movie in California. And then there's also Aloha, that elusive Cameron Crowe movie with Bradley Cooper, Emma Stone, Rachel McAdams. It has a great cast. It has Cameron Crowe. I hope that will be enough. Next week, the return of Adam and Josh to film spotting. They will review a Cameron Crowe film, but whether that is Aloha or maybe a Sacred Cow review of Say Anything remains to be seen so stay tuned. In two weeks, we will be back at our regular home, Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. We will be reviewing the Palm Door winner from the 2014 Cannes Film Festival, Nuri Bilga Jalan's Winter Sleep. We'll also be recommending plenty of other movies you can rent or stream at home right now. If you're not a subscriber already to Film Spotting SVU, do check us out. You can find us in iTunes, the podcast app of your choice, or at filmspottingsvu.com. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hallgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Music this week from Hot Chip from the new album Why Makes Sense. More information at hotchip.co.uk. For Film Spotting, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. You want to read that last part again yeah, one more time? Let me just do the whole thing. Warning The Film Spotting Top 5 may trigger flashbacks of memories of your time on Mars. Top five side. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> warning. The top. <laughs> oh, God. Warning, warning. Warning. Klaxon. Hard, Klaxon. To, re- hard to read this part of the <laughs> script. Will Robinson. Warning.